Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 14, At the Superba. I had only met Gordon Beckett once, and that was about five years before. I'd been looking for Tilly and went to Southend-on-Sea where her old man was a Punch and Judy man down on the beach to see if he'd had any word of her, which, as it happened, he hadn't. I vividly recalled, though, his conviction that the Germans were coming. By all accounts, they were building a great navy and old Beckett was convinced that they were planning an invasion by sea that would land at Southend. The old fellow stared out to sea, a look of grim determination on his face as he said, "'When they come, we'll set fire to the pier, Mr Punch and me.' All that wood, it'll go up like billy-o. Sometime after that, Tilly's family had been forced to do a midnight flit after the Punch and Judy stand suddenly exploded. It seemed that some bright spark had flicked a cigarette end in there on the way home from the pub, probably cocking a derisory snook at the whole idea of the puppet show, and had ignited old Beckett's little stockpile of dynamite and other goodies. I'd made a promise to help Tilly find her family, father, mother, sister, nephew, niece, when we returned to Blighty, without any real clue how on earth I would start to do that. Now, though, it appeared they'd scuttled off to Great Yarmouth, where her father's paranoia about the Germans had apparently been fanned by recent events in the Balkans, and he'd made a bid to save the citizens of his adopted town from Teutonic rape and pillage by setting fire to the Britannia Pier for them. Prison, Tilly said, her eyes brimming with tears. Hospital. It says he's not expected to stand trial. That's good, isn't it? I said. But Stan inhaled sharply through his teeth, shaking his head slowly. Clearly they can't prove anything, I pressed on, trying to find a silver lining. It means they don't expect him to live long enough, Tilly said in a small voice. No, 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 I said. It means... Then, however, I saw that it might very well mean exactly what she feared. We have to go back. Tilly said firmly. I have to see him. He needs to know I'm all right. He needs to see his grandson. I have to see my mamma. We have to go back. She sat looking out of the window with a determined look on her beautiful face. Stan, Freddy and I looked at one another as little Wallace clambered all over his uncle Fred, trying to twist his ear off, and none of us had any idea how we were going to make the cash appear from thin air to make this possible, much as we would all have loved to. We arrived in Los Angeles, which was hot and sticky, and found that the Considine organisation had hived us off into a dump called The Happy Hour, a 150-seat baker's oven off Main Street. Even selling out, which the place wasn't doing, we were hardly going to break even once we'd taken care of our living expenses, and the prospect of moving up to the Considine's bigger time was uncertain. All we could do was keep plugging away, keep getting the laughs, and hope word of mouth would make its way back to Seattle which didn't help us with our present pickle. Tilly, understandably, became quite fretful, and we discussed the situation over and over again until we were going round in circles. One night that week, we were lying together in the darkness, listening to the boys' light snuffling from the adjacent crib, and she came round, as she had to, to the only sensible way of looking at it. "'You're quite right. It's impossible. 
Even if we could scrape together enough for a ticket for just me and the little one to go, I couldn't leave you boys in the lurch. Well, I suppose we could look for someone else, I mused. Oh, you'd like that, I suppose. I was thinking maybe Freddy would enjoy the casting process. He must have picked up a tip or two from his old man about how it's done. Ha! Tilly slapped my cheek. Upper. And there are plenty of girls here, all desperate to get spotted and put in front of a camera or tied to a railway track. You think it'd be that easy to replace me? I don't, I don't, I protested. Besides, it's not like I actually want to leave the nutty bees. I'm really enjoying work more than ever. And you're brilliant at it, I said, partly because it was absolutely true, and partly because nothing made Tilly more affectionate than a nice, earnest compliment or two. True to form, she drew herself closer to me and laid her warm leg along mine. So that's that, I said. We're forgetting about England for now. Oh, you never know, Tilly said. Something could come up. The next afternoon we set out for a walk to kill time before our shift began. Tilly wanted to push the boy in his baby carriage around Grand Park in the hope that he would nod off for a while. Stan, Freddy and I were deemed too stimulating for the little man and so we were dispatched in the other direction, strolling through the theatre district in the sunshine. "'It's no wonder the happy hour is struggling,' Stan said. "'Why, because it's a flea pit, you mean?' Freddy piped up. "'No, look around. It's not exactly short of competition, is it?' Stan had a point, certainly. We sauntered past any number of rival entertainment establishments in just a few minutes. A bijou, a liberty, a metropolitan, a unique, a gem, a banner, another unique, a novelty. Our feet seemed to lead us naturally back to the Empress, the big Considine theatre that we'd played with Carnos, and we gazed a little wistfully up at the fancy frontage and browsed the bill matter. The Buster Brown Company seemed to be filling our old slot for this particular week. The Carson brothers offered posturing, whatever that entailed, and I wouldn't have fancied sharing dressing room space with Columbus the celebrated white horse, however well-trained he was. "'We'll be back,' Stan grinned. "'Just wait and see. Old Considine likes us. He won't let us wallow in small time for too long.' "'I hope you're right,' I said, and we wandered on. We passed the People's Theatre, a rival vaudeville house to the Empress. Last time we were in town it had boasted a bill that matched Sullivan and Considine's, now, though, it was renamed The Century, and it was showing moving pictures. The three of us glanced at one another. This was a surprise and no mistake. A couple of blocks further on, on South Broadway, we came to a brand new theatre, a building of such spectacular luxury that we all stopped and pushed the straw boaters back on our heads to admire it. Quinn's Superba, the sign gleamed. Hell of a name, I muttered. Freddy grinned. We couldn't resist taking a quick look, and the lobby was open and quite busy, so we wandered inside for a mingle. The sumptuous main hall was finished entirely in onyx, with faux columns containing concealed electric lighting. It looked like it had cost an absolute mint. Stan was inspecting the programme, which was attached to the wall in a gleaming frame of hammered brass. "'Good God!' he said suddenly, and Freddy and I tripped across the luxurious red carpet to join him. "'What is it?' Freddy asked. This place. It's not a theatre. It's a Nickelodeon. Oh, calm off it. It is. Look. Stan began to read aloud from the banner advertisement. Showing exclusively first-run offerings from the General Film Company, accompanied by a ten-piece resident orchestra, the only one in the whole of California. Admission stalls, ten cents. Circle, fifteen cents. Loge, twenty cents. Well, I said, it's not exactly a Nickelodeon, then, is it? At best, it's a Dimododian. It's not far short of a quarter, Odeon, Freddy chipped in. 
What is a loge, anyway? It had better have a couch and pillows for twenty cents. And a butler, said Stan. I cast a quick eye over the flickers on offer in this magnificent palace. At least there were no chaplain pictures, that was something, although there was a keystone on the bill. There was Gilbert M. Anderson in Bronco Billy and the Sheriff. Victor Potel starred in Slippery Slim's Inheritance. There was something called How He Lost His Trousers, a documentary from the Calum Company called In Old England, and the Hurst Selig News Pictorial, number 39. The place was clearly thriving as plenty of people were walking in for the afternoon matinee. Stan, Freddy and I found ourselves wandering in without a word, like lost spirits, each of us wondering what was happening to the world order we knew. We took our seats in the plush new auditorium, and the place was heaving, at least as lively as you could have hoped for on a weekday afternoon. And yet these folks were here to watch pictures. We were flabbergasted. The programme began with a so-so effort featuring someone called William West in The Adventures of the Absent-Minded Professor. He bumbled around, lost things, found them again, tried to write a letter with a carrot. You get the idea. The crowd were very excited, it seemed, but only half of them really appeared to be paying attention. The rest were chattering and drinking in a good-natured hubbub. A pianist, not a ten-piece orchestra, I noted, unless they were counting his individual fingers, was gamely trying to make himself heard with his plinky-plonk accompaniments to the gentle tumbling and gesturing, but he was fighting a losing battle. Stan and I shrugged at one another with a long-suffering sigh. We were used to seeing the moving pictures greeted with indifference, but not usually by such a big crowd, and a big crowd, moreover, who had paid specially to see them. After a couple more similarly duff offerings had been largely ignored by the room, a production title card shone up on the screen, and the keystone picture, entitled Mabel's Busy Day, was next. The first person to appear on the screen was Mabel Normand, whose busy day this was to be. She was playing a rather forlorn hot dog seller, and in order to get inside a racetrack, she bribed a copper sporting a walrus moustache with a free hot dog, and he let her slip in through a gap in the fence. Once inside the arena, she had a contretemps or two with some spectators, one of whom was recognisable as Mac Sennett himself. Mabel was funny enough, and nice to look at too, but around us in the theatre, the crowd's attitude remained more or less unimpressed. Suddenly, though, that changed dramatically. The scene shifted to outside the racetrack again, where a queue of people were waiting to get in. A figure swaggered past them all, but no one in the queue objected. In fact, they were all grinning, fit to bust. He turned on the spot to face the camera, and immediately a cheer went up that shook the chandeliers. There was an almighty banging of seats as people leapt to their feet and punched the air. Clearly this was what they'd all been waiting for. This was what they all wanted to see. It was Chaplin. Of course it was. He wasn't playing a tramp in this picture. He had on a smart suit, grey, comprising an over-large jacket with a white carnation, buttonhole, baggy trousers, those large shoes that enabled him to do his funny rolling walk, the endlessly versatile bendy cane, the whole ensemble topped off with a moustache and a pale grey bowler hat. He was a drunk, an inebriated swell no less, very reminiscent of the character he had played in Mummingbirds for Carno, and even more painfully reminiscent of my rolling drunk stowaway. I knew it wasn't just me who saw it either, as I heard Stan whistle softly beside me. I watched agog as Charlie got into a shoving match with the walrus mustachioed policeman, exactly as I had with the stewards on board ship. He took it further, of course. In fact, he took it into some quite incredible realms of violence, kicking the cop repeatedly in the chest before sneaking into the race venue without paying. 
We caught a glimpse then of the cars racing around the track, throwing up great clouds of dust as they curved past the camera. The crowd, though, were all facing away from the track, completely ignoring the cars whizzing around, simply desperate to see what Charlie was going to get up to. In the room where we sat, actually we were obliged to stand by the unruly excitement all around, every mean-spirited arse-kick was greeted like the very soul of wit. Men and women were howling with mirth, quite literally holding their sides. I didn't know anyone actually did this in real life until that very afternoon. One or two were rolling on the floor, completely out of control, utterly unconcerned about their dignity. The picture's story was thinness itself. Charlie stole Mabel's hot dogs, fought a number of people, including Mabel herself, who he punched in the face, and ended up losing his jacket and shirt so that only his collar and tie remained. Even though Mabel Norman had evidently written the piece, directed it, and got her name in the title, there was no doubt that it was Charlie who was the main attraction. I could barely breathe now. His antics were so familiar, and the audience's reaction all around him was so ecstatic that I found I could no longer bear to watch any more. I needed air. No, scratch that. I needed drink. I staggered to my feet, pushed past half a row of cheering imbeciles with tears cascading down their stupid cheeks, and stumbled up the aisle towards the back of the auditorium. My head was spinning, and I leant against a pillar for a moment to recover my equilibrium. Arthur, a voice nearby said, tentatively, disbelieving. I only just registered it above the merry hubbub all around. I turned to see who was addressing me, and even in the flickering gloom I recognised the distinctive purple eyes peering in astonishment over the fancy silk scarf that was modestly disguising the lower half of his celebrated face. Charlie. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 15. The Film Johnny. I found Tilly back at our digs, buttoning the little man into a fresh pair of tiny trousers. I'd seen as I approached along the corridor a line of nappies drying in the communal bathroom, and thankfully our fellow residents were an indulgent lot, so we didn't have to have them strung along the side of our bed. "'Good walk?' I said, tickling Wallace and making him giggle. Dada! he cried, and this time he meant me, and not Stanley's showman flourish. "'I've been thinking,' Tilly said, a serious expression on her face." I sighed inwardly. About your father, you mean? 
How about if I were to go to New York and try to work my passage, cleaning cabins on a liner, something like that? Who's looking after the baby all this time? I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. And how are you paying for the train? Well, I'm... I was thinking I could jump on a boxcar. With a baby? That's your plan. Get an 18-month-old child to ride the rails like a hobo. No, no, well, not exactly. You remember the Carno boxcar? There are other acts with cars like that crisscrossing the country all the time. Those Marx boys, for one. Those Marx boys were four brothers that we'd met and hit it off with the year before when we were touring the big time. Well, not the big time exactly, but certainly bigger than the dump we were currently appearing in. Julius, Arthur, Lenny and Milton had a 15-strong company and did indeed travel in a boxcar very similar to ours. Schedules like theirs, though, hopped from town to town, city to city, trying to keep the travelling as civilised as possible. The chances of such an act crossing the continent west to east in one go, even if they could be persuaded to let Tilly hitch a ride with a baby in tow, were somewhere between pretty slim and none at all. Tilly, I began, and I could hear my tone was discouraging. I just need to meet the right people, and... <sighs> she could sustain this fantasy no longer, and sat heavily on the bed, plunging her face into her hands. I sat beside her and put an arm around her shoulders, registering the sobs that she was trying to hide from me. "'I'm sorry, love,' I said. "'I just can't see how to do it. "'If I could, I would. "'You know that.' She nodded, little nods, and leaned against me. "'Hey,' I said, trying to change the subject in a manner that was jauntier than I was feeling. "'Speaking of meeting the right people, guess who we bumped into this afternoon? "'Someone who's travelling to New York and needs some company?' Well, I don't know so much about that, but as it happens, someone we've been to New York with in the past. Tilly was drawing a blank, perhaps off her game because of worrying about her old man. Tell me, she said. I held a moment for maximum impact, and then said, Charlie. Charlie? Tilly didn't look surprised. She just frowned, puzzled, as though she didn't even know who I meant. Yes, Charlie. Charlie Chaplin. Now her eyebrows shot up. "'Charlie? He's here? Oh, of course he is. This is where he works, isn't it? Los Angeles. I was forgetting. How could I have forgotten that? Where? Where did you meet him? How? How is he? What's he doing?' I threw my hands up to block this sudden barrage of questioning. "'Whoa, whoa, whoa,' I said. "'Take a breath, and I'll tell you.' I checked my pocket watch and saw that it was time to hot-foot it to the theatre for the first of our four-a-days, so I picked up the little lad, she grabbed the bag that went with him everywhere containing items to entertain him, feed him or clean him up, and I filled her in on the way. Charlie, is that you? I'd said at the back of the movie theatre. Whisht, not here he hissed, and took me by the arm, leading me out into the onyx-clad lobby, and then straight through and out onto South Broadway, where he trotted along the front of the building and ducked into the shadowy mouth of an alley. I was so stunned to see him that I just followed along meekly and waited for him to explain the cloak and dagger. "'Sorry about that,' Charlie said. "'It's just that I like to watch the crowd, but I have to stay incognito, otherwise I can never get away from them.' I knew it, I said. You miss it, don't you? The laughter. You miss it. Charlie frowned. I miss it? I don't miss standing on a stage at the audience's mercy, if that's what you mean. But I do need to know, from time to time, if such and such a trick is going down or not. How else am I to develop my art? Which particular art are we talking about, I said. The art of kicking someone up the arse, or the art of kicking a copper in the chest? 
Charlie didn't pick up on my sarcasm. It's actually rather irritating when they love absolutely everything, he said. One learns nothing at all. But tell me, how do you come to be here in Los Angeles? Are the Carnos in town? I've seen no mention. Well, some of us are, I said. I found I didn't want to tell him that the tour had foundered principally because he had left us. His head was big enough already. The governor called the company home, but I decided to stick around and work up a vaudeville turn with Stan and Freddy. How marvellous, Charlie cried. So Stan and Fred are here too. Inside, I said, jerking a thumb back towards the superba. Charlie flung his scarf round his face again and stuck his head out of the alleyway so he could keep an eye on the gilded entrance. Look here, he said, tiring of this after a moment. We really must catch up, but I have to dash. Duty calls, all that. But here. He fumbled in his jacket pocket and produced a card, embossed, very smart, very new, which he handed to me. This is where I live. It isn't so far away. Just a few blocks. Come for luncheon. Tomorrow. All of you. Midday. I happen to find myself completely free, so I am at your service. Say you'll come. Right-o, I said with a shrug, thinking a free lunch was the very least he owed me. Stout fellow, Charlie cried, grasping my hand quickly. Then he darted off and slipped into the back of a limousine, which had ghosted up to the curb a little way off without my noticing it until that very moment. I stood there, watching him ooze away luxuriously, marvelling at the coincidence of running into him, and wondering why I hadn't mentioned Tilly. Or, for that matter, Wallace. So, you're meeting him tomorrow, Tilly said, as we burrowed down into the hot, dingy dressing rooms at the happy hour. We all are. We are all invited. I wonder, she said with a frown. What do you wonder? I asked. Whether I should go. Of course you should. Why ever not? Well, you know perfectly well, she said, flicking her eyes at little Wallace. I did know why she was having misgivings, of course. Back when she'd fallen pregnant with the boy, she'd allowed Charlie to believe that he was the father. She'd allowed me to believe that too, for a long while. And he'd hurriedly given her money, money he'd borrowed from Stan, as it happens, to make herself scarce. Charlie's fear at the time was that having gotten a girl in the family way would be a sufficient example of moral turpitude, a phrase of the governor's, borrowed from the US Bureau of Immigration, to cost him his precious place as number one of a Carno company. Later, much later, she'd admitted to me that she'd hoodwinked him and that really I was Wallace's dad. She did this to save me from having to make the decision whether or not to abandon my own Carno career to take care of her because she feared that either choice might have led me to resent both her and the child forever afterwards. We were past that point now, happily. Seeing Charlie again would be awkward for Tilly, I could see that, especially as he must still be under the impression that she'd borne his child. However, I rather wanted to put him through that embarrassment, see the wind taken from his sails, watch him squirm a little bit. It would be good for him, I thought, especially as our encounter the day before had forcibly reminded me of just how very full of himself Charlie could be. So I said, Don't be silly. Of course you must come. Wallace too. It's just a social call, just a little bit of lunch. It'll be fun. We can all talk about old times. Tilly still looked dubious. Well, if you're sure, she said. The next day, we set off on foot towards the address Charlie had given me. It was approaching midday, and the scorching sun was high in the sky. So Charlie's in charge of luncheon, Freddy chirped. Wonder what we're having. I'm hoping for a gas jet fry-up, Stan said. That's his speciality. "'What on earth is that?' Tilly asked. "'Oh, of course, you never had one, did you, love?' I said. We laughed as we remembered our first weeks in New York back in 1910, when Stan and Charlie had shared a room, and to make Carno's meagre wage stretch a little further, we would all contribute to a meal of sausages and bacon, which we would cook on the gas-jet lamps. 
Freddy and I would be detailed to waft the telltale smoke out of the window, while Charlie would march up and down playing the violin with wild exuberance so that the landlady would not hear the fat hissing and spitting from the corridor outside. Those were some of my favourite meals, and if that was what Charlie had in mind, I for one would not be complaining. The walk was taking longer than expected in the heat, and little Wallace was beginning to suffer. The lad was red in the face and sweating, and as we turned onto 7th Avenue he began to cry. Not a serious wail, but not a happy noise either. Tilly picked him up to comfort him, and I pushed the empty baby carriage along the sidewalk. A little ahead of us now, Stan and Freddy had stopped, and were looking up at a huge new building in the Beaux-Arts style, with gigantic arched windows above the shop fronts that occupied the ground floor. It comprised two tall blocks of apartments side by side, with a matching block between them of around half the site, so that the whole was like a giant U-shape. The American flag hung down flaccidly from a diagonal pole above the entrance, and a row of taxicabs was waiting outside. It looked rather like an embassy. This is the address, Stan said, but the sign says it's the Los Angeles Athletic Club. A doorman in full and rather warm-looking livery was in attendance, and Freddy stepped over to ask his advice. "'Good morning,' he said. "'We are looking for the address of Mr Charles Chaplin.' The doorman acquiesced with a little bow and swept a large glass door open for us. "'It's here?' Freddy asked, and the functionary nodded, indicating with his free hand the reception desk across the spacious lobby. Freddy turned to us with his eyebrows raised. "'We have arrived,' he said." We entered a hallway of sumptuous magnificence. Two huge chandeliers hung from the ornate white ceiling. More electric lights were set into the dark wood panelling that covered the walls, and some columns too, and our feet sank into a rich diamond-patterned carpet. At the far end there were brass-fronted elevators in a smaller lobby clad in white marble, with blue stained-glass windows opening onto an enclosed garden. Stan whistled softly and Freddy ran his palm softly over some of the panelling. I could hardly believe Charlie could afford to stay in a place like this, and was sure the doorman had made a mistake, or hadn't heard the question, or maybe was foreign and hadn't understood, and would have opened the door to us whatever we'd said. I strode over to the reception desk with Tilly beside me, and a smartly dressed young reception clerk smiled. A very good morning to you, sir, and to you, madam. How may I help you today? Wallace began to grizzle again, and Tilly gave the youth an apologetic smile. "'He's very hot, I'm afraid,' she said. "'Of course,' he said, graciously sympathetic. "'We're looking for Mr Charles Chaplin,' I said. "'Of course,' the young receptionist said again. "'We are expecting you. I shall call his apartment directly. But, first things first. He turned and picked up a large jug full of water, glistening with condensation and rattling with ice cubes, and he poured a glass for Tilly to share with the little boy.' "'Perhaps this will help,' he said, with an understanding smile, and Tilly nodded gratefully. "'And if you like, you can wait in our private garden. There's plenty of shade, and it's not quite so stuffy as it is in here. Just past the elevators there.' "'Thank you,' Tilly smiled. "'You're very kind.' Tilly and Wallace set off for the garden, as directed, and the youth picked up the earpiece of a telephone. "'If you gentlemen would like to take a seat, I will let Mr Chaplin know his party has arrived.' We nodded, and sank onto a luxurious leather settee, which was pleasingly cool. None of us spoke while we waited. We were just too awestruck by our surroundings. The bell of the Otis elevator went ting a couple of times, and spewed out a stream of affluent types who walked past us and out into the street, past the doorman, to step into taxicabs. After we had waited perhaps five or six minutes, a fresh ting heralded the arrival of our host. 
Charlie sauntered over to greet us in a cream-coloured linen suit, which looked enviably cool. There was, naturally, no trace of the splay-footed walk, or indeed the oversized shoes and bendy cane. He looked happy, confident and successful. In short, all things I suspected he'd been practising in front of a mirror while he kept us waiting in the lobby. "'Stan!' Charlie cried, and gathered his erstwhile roommate into an embrace. "'And Freddy! How marvellous that you're here!' Freddy, too, was hugged, and then it was my turn. "'Arthur! Thank you! Thank you for coming!' "'Quite a place you have here,' I said. "'Oh!' Charlie said, slapping my arm in a way that managed to convey that he knew I was joking, but also that it was actually quite a place, even if it wasn't entirely his. "'It affords me the privacy I require,' he said, "'and besides, it's quite the place for watching the cream of Los Angeles society. "'They all either live here or congregate here to use the facilities. "'See! Look there!' "'He indicated two gentlemen who were walking into a sitting-room together, "'deep in conversation. "'On the left?' is William Desmond Taylor. He's an actor and movie director and a friend of my colleague Mabel Normand, and the older gentleman is Mr Baum, the author of all those books about the mystic land of Oz. He organises the entertainments here like a sort of glee club. I wonder what they're cooking up? Meanwhile, a rangy fellow, slightly stooped but fit-looking, with little round glasses perched on a beak of a nose, marched urgently over to the reception desk and consulted with the young functionary there. Charlie pointed him out discreetly. That's Glenn Martin, the famous aviator. They threw a dinner for him here not long ago, and he didn't realise until the end of the evening that the dining table was one of the wings of his own biplane. Ha <laughs> ha! His face! Martin had been directed towards his appointment and seemed to be on his way until Charlie sang out, I say, Martin! Whereupon the beanpole swivelled on the heel of his leather boot and strode over. Why, Mr Chaplin, how are you today? "'I am thriving, Mr. Martin, and yourself? "'I cannot complain, sir, I cannot complain.' "'These are friends of mine from England,' Charlie said, "'and we all shook the famous flyer by the hand. "'They say there will be war in Europe, gentlemen. "'What do you think?' Martin said, his face serious. "'War?' I said. Hmm. "'Maybe a spat between the Austro-Hungarians and some Serbs. "'I don't see what it has to do with us. "'Well, if the Russians come in on one side—' Then they set themselves against the Germans, and I do believe the Kaiser fancies a war with everyone, simply because there hasn't been one in a while. You take a keen interest in politics, Mr. Martin, Stan said. I do, sir, I do, for if there is to be war, then it will be the first in which flyers can play a part. What you mean for reconnaissance, I said, spotting enemy positions and the like? No, sir, I tell you, the aeroplane will decide the war in Europe. Flying death! will smash armies and wreck mammoth battleships. He leaned in closer. I have an idea for a plane, sir, that can soar above the conflict so that the pilot can drop bombs on one side or the other as he pleases, like Thor the Thunder God. And the generals who realise quickest that the fight can be won with flying death will be victorious. Mark my words. The celebrated aviator excused himself then and strode off urgently about his business, which I presumed involved persuading people to invest in his flying death machines. I must say, Charlie said, old Martin seems even keener than the Kaiser on starting a brouhaha. Do you think there will be a war? Stan asked. Well, I'll tell you this much for nothing, Charlie replied. If there is to be a war, then this is the place to be, thousands and thousands of miles away from it. You couldn't get me to go back to England just now for love or money. All of a sudden... Charlie blanched. His smile evaporated. His confident veneer fell away, and his eyes widened until I could see white all around those unmistakable violet irises. "'What is this?' he hissed. 
We turned to see what had thrown him so, and saw Tilly walking across the lobby with Wallace, holding him by the hand as he walked along, clearly feeling a bit more like it. "'What? What do you mean?' Stan said. "'Are you lot trying it on?' Charlie growled. "'Because if you are—' "'Whatever are you talking about?' Freddy said, with a look of baffled innocence. "'That's Tilly. You remember Tilly, surely. Hasn't been that long. She's with us. Come and say hello. Come on.' Charlie shook his head quickly, but then, just as suddenly, recovered himself. By the time he had followed Freddy across the lobby to meet Tilly, he had plastered his biggest, toothiest smile all over his face. "'Tilly, my dear, how lovely to see you, and looking so well!' He took Tilly's hand and kissed it flamboyantly, making a knee like some restoration fop. "'And who is this little man?' Charlie offered his hand formally to our lad, who just blinked up at him, and then buried his face in Tilly's skirts. "'This is Wallace,' Tilly said. "'He's a little shy.' No, he isn't, I thought. He just recognises an oily, untrustworthy bastard when he sees one. Wallace, Charlie said. I see. I see. Well, it's a pleasure to make your acquaintance, Wallace. Plainly, Charlie hadn't met many 18-month-old boys. And if I was unsettled by the opulence of Charlie's lifestyle, and could hardly help feeling a certain amount of jealousy, at least those feelings were balanced somewhat by my enjoyment of Charlie's discombobulation at seeing Tilly and the little chap. "'Well,' Charlie said, clapping his hands together, "'Luncheon? Shall we?'